0: Section two of the Symposium. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. The Symposium by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Section two. Pausanias came to a pause. This is the balanced way in which I have been taught by the wise to speak, and Aristodemus said that the turn of Aristophanes was next, but either he had eaten too much, or from some other cause he had the hiccough, and was obliged to change turns with Eryximachus, the physician, who was reclining on the couch below him. Eryximachus, he said, you ought either to stop my hiccough, or to speak in my turn, until I have left off i will do both said eryximachus i will speak in your turn and do you speak in mine and while i am speaking let me recommend you to hold your breath and if after you have done so for some time the hiccough is no better then gargle with a little water and if it still continues tickle your nose with something and sneeze and if you sneeze once or twice even the most violent hiccough is sure to go i will do as you prescribe said aristophanes and now get on Eryximachus spoke as follows. Seeing that Pausanias made a fair beginning, and but a lame ending, I must endeavour to supply his deficiency. I think that he has rightly distinguished two kinds of love. But my art further informs me that the double love is not merely an affection of the soul of man towards the fair, or towards anything, but is to be found in the bodies of all animals, and in productions of the earth. And I may say, in all that is, such is the conclusion which i seem to have gathered from my own arts of medicine whence i learn how great and wonderful and universal is the deity of love whose empire extends over all things divine as well as human and for medicine i will begin that i may do honour to my art there are in the human body these two kinds of love which are confessedly different and unlike and being unlike they have loves and desires which are unlike and the desire of the healthy is one, and the desire of the diseased is another. And as Pausanias was just now saying that to indulge good men is honourable, and bad men dishonourable, so too in the body the good and healthy elements are to be indulged, and the bad elements and the elements of disease are not to be indulged, but discouraged. And this is what the physician has to do, and in this the art of medicine consists for medicine may be regarded generally as the knowledge of the loves and desires of the body and how to satisfy them or not and the best physician is he who is able to separate fair love from foul or to convert one into the other and he who knows how to eradicate and how to implant love whichever is required and can reconcile the most hostile elements in the constitution and make them loving friends is a skilful practitioner Now, the most hostile are the most opposite, such as hot and cold, bitter and sweet, moist and dry, and the like. And my ancestor, Asclepius, knowing how to implant friendship and accord in these elements, was the creator of our art, as our friends and poets here tell us, and I believe them, and not only medicine in every branch, but the arts of gymnastic and husbandry are under his dominion. Any one who pays the least attention to the subject will also perceive that in music there is the same reconciliation of opposites, and I suppose that this must have been the meaning of Heraclitus, although his words are not accurate, for he says that the one is united by disunion, like the harmony of the bow and the lyre. Now, there is an absurdity saying that harmony is discord, or is composed of elements which are still in a state of discord. But, what he probably meant was, that harmony is composed of different notes of higher and lower pitch, which disagreed once, but are now reconciled by the art of music. For, if the higher and lower notes still disagreed, there could be no harmony. Clearly not, for harmony is a symphony, and symphony is an agreement. But an agreement of disagreements, while they disagree, there cannot be. You cannot harmonize that which disagrees, In like manner, rhythm is compounded of elements, short and long, once differing and now in accord, which accordance, as in the former instance, medicine, so in all these other cases, music implants, making love and unison to grow up among them. And thus music, too, is concerned with the principles of love in their application to harmony and rhythm. Again, in the essential nature of harmony and rhythm, there is no difficulty in discerning love which has not yet become double. But when you want to use them, in actual life, either in the composition of songs, or in the correct performance of airs or meters, composed already, which latter is called education, then the difficulty begins, and the good artist is needed. Then the old tale has to be repeated of fair and heavenly love, the love of Urania, the fair and heavenly muse, and of the duty of accepting the temperate, and those who are as yet intemperate, only that they may become temperate, and of preserving their love, and again of the vulgar polyhymnia, who must be used with circumspection, that the pleasure be enjoyed, but may not generate licentiousness, just as in my own art it is a great matter so to regulate the desires of the epicure, that he may gratify his tastes without the attendant evil of disease. Whence I infer that in music, in medicine, In all other things, human as well as divine, both loves ought to be noted as far as may be, for they are both present. The course of the seasons is also full of both these principles, and when, as I was saying, the elements of hot and cold, moist and dry, attain the harmonious love of one another and blend in temperance and harmony, they bring to men, animals and plants, health and plenty, and do them no harm whereas the wanton love, getting the upper hand, and affecting the seasons of the year, is very destructive and injurious, being the source of pestilence, and bringing many other kinds of diseases on animals and plants. For hoar-frost, and hail, and blight, spring from the excesses and disorders of these elements of love, which, to know in relation to the revolutions of the heavenly bodies and the seasons of the year, is termed astronomy. Furthermore, all sacrifices, and the whole province of divination, which is the art of communion between gods and men, these, I say, are concerned only with the preservation of the good and the cure of the evil love. For all manner of impiety is likely to ensue if, instead of accepting and honouring and reverencing the harmonious love in all his actions, a man honours the other love, whether in his feelings towards gods or parents, towards the living or the dead wherefore the business of divination is to see to these loves and to heal them and divination is the peacemaker of gods and men working by a knowledge of the religious or irreligious tendencies which exist in human loves such is the great and mighty or rather omnipotent force of love in general and the love more especially which is concerned with the good and which is perfected in company with temperance and justice whether among gods or men, has the greatest power, and is the source of all our happiness and harmony, and makes us friends with the gods who are above us, and with one another. I dare say that I too have omitted several things which might be said in praise of love, but this is not intentional, and you, Aristophanes, may now supply the omissions, or take some other line of commendation, for I perceive that you are rid of the hiccough." Yes, said Aristophanes, who followed, the hiccough is gone. Not, however, until I applied the sneezing, and I wonder whether the harmony of the body has a love of such noises and ticklings, for I no sooner applied the sneezing than I was cured. Eryximachus said, Beware, friend Aristophanes, although you are going to speak, you are making fun of me, and I shall have to watch and see whether I cannot have a laugh at your expense when you might speak in peace. You are right, said Aristophanes, laughing, I will unsay my words, but do you please not to watch me, as I fear that in the speech which I am about to make, instead of others laughing with me, which is to the manner born of our muse, and would be all the better, I shall only be laughed at by them. Do you expect to shoot your bolt and escape, Aristophanes? Well, perhaps, if you are careful and bear in mind that you will be called to account. I may be induced to let you off aristophanes professed to open another vein of discourse he had a mind to praise love in another way unlike that either of pausanias or eryximachus mankind he said judging by their neglect of him have never as i think at all understood the power of love for if they had understood him they would surely have built noble temples and altars and offered solemn sacrifices in his honour but this is not done and most certainly ought to be done, since of all the gods he is the best friend of men, the helper and the healer of the ills, which are the great impediment to the happiness of the race. I will try to describe his power to you, and you shall teach the rest of the world what I am teaching you. In the first place, let me treat of the nature of man and what has happened to it. For the original human nature was not like the present, but different— The sexes were not two as they are now, but originally three in number. There was man, woman, and the union of the two, having a name corresponding to this double nature, which had once a real existence, but is now lost, and the word androgynous is only preserved as a term of reproach. In the second place the primeval man was round, his back and sides forming a circle, and he had four hands and four feet one head with two faces, looking opposite ways, set on a round neck, and precisely alike, also four ears, two privy-members, and the remainder to correspond. He could walk upright as men now do, backwards or forwards as he pleased, and he could also roll over and over at a great pace, turning on his four hands and four feet, eight in all. Like tumblers going all over and over with their legs in the air— this was when he wanted to run fast. Now the sexes were three, and such as I have described them, because the sun, moon, and earth are three, and the man was originally the child of the sun, the woman of the earth, and the man-woman of the moon, which is made up of sun and earth, and they were all round and moved round and round like their parents. Terrible was their might and strength, and the thoughts of their hearts were great, and they made an attack upon the gods of them is told the tale of otis and ephiliates who as homer says dared to scale heaven and would have laid hands upon the gods doubt reigned in the celestial councils should they kill them and annihilate the race with thunderbolts as they had done the giants then there would be an end of the sacrifices and worship which men offered to them but on the other hand the gods could not suffer their insolence to be unrestrained. At last, after a good deal of reflection, Zeus discovered a way. He said, Methinks I have a plan which will humble their pride and improve their manners. Men shall continue to exist, but I will cut them in two, and then they will be diminished in strength and increased in numbers. This will have the advantage of making them more profitable to us. They shall walk upright on two legs, and if they continue insolent and will not be quiet, I will split them again, and they shall hop about on a single leg. He spoke and cut men in two, like a sore apple which is halved for pickling, or as you might divide an egg with a hair, and as he cut them one after another, he bade Apollo give the face and the half of the neck a turn, in order that the man might contemplate the section of himself. He would thus learn a lesson of humility." apollo was also bidden to heal their wounds and compose their forms so he gave a turn to the face and pulled the skin from the sides all over that which in our language is called the belly like the purses which draw in and he made one mouth at the centre which he fastened in a knot bracket, the same which is called the navel Close bracket. he also moulded the breast and took out most of the wrinkles much as a shoemaker might smooth leather upon a last. He left a few, however, in the region of the belly and navel, as a memorial of the primeval state. After the division of the two parts of man, each desiring his other half, came together, and throwing their arms about one another, entwined in mutual embraces, longing to grow into one. They were on the point of dying from hunger and self-neglect, because they did not like to do anything apart, And when one of the halves died and the other survived, the survivor sought another mate, man or woman, as we call them, being the sections of entire men or women, and clung to that. They were being destroyed, when Zeus, in pity of them, invented a new plan. He turned the parts of generation round to the front, for this had not always been their position, and they sowed the seed no longer as hitherto like grasshoppers in the ground, but in one another and after the transposition the male generated in the female, in order that by the mutual embraces of man and woman they might breed, and the race might continue, or if man came to man they might be satisfied, and rest and go their way to the business of life. So ancient is the desire of one another which is implanted in us, reuniting our original nature, making one of two, and healing the state of man. Each of us, when separated, Having one side only, like a flat fish, is but the indenture of a man, and he is always looking for his other half. Men who are a section of that double nature which was once called androgynous are lovers of women. Adulterers are generally of this breed, and also adulterous women who lust after men. The women who are a section of the woman do not care for men, but have female attachments. The female companions are of this sort. But they who are a section of the male, follow the male, and while they are young, being slices of the original man, they hang about men, and embrace them, and they are themselves the best of boys and youths, because they have the most manly nature. Some indeed assert that they are shameless, but this is not true, for they do not act thus from any want of shame, but because they are valiant and manly, and have a manly countenance, and they embrace that which is like them and these, when they grow up, become our statesmen, and these only, which is a great proof of the truth of what I am saying. When they reach manhood they are lovers of youth, and are not naturally inclined to marry or beget children, if at all they do so only in obedience to the law, but they are satisfied if they may be allowed to live with one another unwedded, and such a nature is prone to love, and ready to return love, always embracing that which is akin to him and when one of them meets with his other half, the actual half of himself, whether he be a lover of youth or a lover of another sort, the pair are lost in an amazement of love and friendship and intimacy, and one will not be out of the other's sight, as I may say even for a moment. These are the people who pass their whole lives together, yet they could not explain what they desire of one another for the intense yearning which each of them has towards the other does not appear to be the desire of lovers' intercourse, but of something else which the soul of either evidently desires and cannot tell, and of which she has only a dark and doubtful presentiment. Suppose Hephaestus, with his instruments, to come to the pair who are lying side by side, and to say to them, What do you people want of one another? They would be unable to explain. And suppose further that, when he saw their perplexity he said do you desire to be wholly one always day and night to be in one another's company for if this is what you desire i am ready to melt you into one and let you grow together so that being two you shall become one and while you live live a common life as if you were a single man and after your death in the world below still be one departed soul instead of two i ask whether this is what you lovingly desire and whether you are satisfied to attain this. There is not a man of them who, when he heard the proposal, would deny or would not acknowledge that this meeting and melting into one another, this becoming one instead of two, was the very expression of his ancient need. And the reason is that human nature was originally one, and we were a whole, and the desire and pursuit of the whole is called love. There was a time, I say, when we were one, But now, because of the wickedness of mankind, God has dispersed us, as the Arcadians were dispersed into villages by the Lacedaemonians. And if we are not obedient to the gods, there is a danger that we shall be split up again, and go about in basso relivio, like the profile figures having only one half a nose, which are sculpted on monuments, and that we shall be like tallies. Wherefore, let us exhort all men to piety, That we may avoid evil and obtain the good of which love is to us the lord and minister, and let no one oppose him, he is the enemy of the gods who opposes him, for if we are friends of the god and at peace with him we shall find our own true loves, which rarely happens in this world at present. I am serious and therefore I must beg Eryximachus not to make fun or to find any allusion in what I am saying to Pausanias and Agathon, who, as I suspect, are both of the manly nature, and belong to the class which I have been describing. But my words have a wider application. They include men and women everywhere, and I believe that if our loves were perfectly accomplished, and each one returning to his primeval nature had his original true love, then our race would be happy. And, if this would be best of all, the best in the next degree, and under present circumstances, must be the nearest approach to such a union, and that will be the attainment of a congenial love. Wherefore, if we would praise him who has given to us the benefit, we must praise the god-love, who is our greatest benefactor, both leading us in this life back to our own nature, and giving us high hopes for the future for he promises that if we are pious he will restore us to our original state and heal us and make us happy and blessed this eryximachus is my discourse of love which although different to yours i must beg you to leave unassailed by the shafts of your ridicule in order that each may have his turn each or rather either for agathon and socrates are the only ones left indeed. I am not going to attack you, said Eryximachus, for I thought your speech charming, and did I not know that Agathon and Socrates are masters in the art of love, I should be really afraid that they would have nothing to say after the world of things which have been said already. But for all that I am not without hopes. Socrates said, You played your part well, Eryximachus, but if you were as I am now or rather, as I shall be when Agathon has spoken, you would indeed be in a great strait. You want to cast a spell over me, Socrates, said Agathon, in the hope that I may be disconcerted at the expectation raised among the audience that I shall speak well. I should be strangely forgetful, Agathon, replied Socrates, of the courage and magnanimity which you showed, when your own compositions were about to be exhibited, and you came upon the stage, with the actors, and faced the vast theatre, altogether undismayed, if I thought that your nerves could be fluttered by a small party of friends. "'Do you think, Socrates,' said Agathon, that my head is so full of the theatre, as not to know how much more formidable to a man of sense a few good judges are than many fools?' Nay, replied Socrates, I should be very wrong in attributing to you, Agathon, that or any other want of refinement, and I am quite aware that if you happened to meet with any whom you thought wise, you would care for their opinion much more than for that of the many. But then we, having been a part of the foolish many in the theatres, cannot be regarded as the select wise, though I know that if you chanced to be in the presence, not of one of ourselves, but of some really wise man... "'you would be ashamed of disgracing yourself before him, would you not?' "'Yes,' said Agathon. "'But before the many you would not be ashamed, "'if you thought that you were doing something disgraceful in their presence?' "'Here Phaedrus interrupted them, saying, "'Don't answer him, my dear Agathon, "'for if he can only get a partner with whom he can talk, "'especially a good-looking one, "'he will no longer care about the completion of our plan.' Now I love to hear him talk, but just at present I must not forget the encomium of love which I ought to receive from him, and from every one. When you and he have paid your tribute to the god, then you may talk. Very good, Phaedrus, said Agathon. I see no reason why I should not proceed with my speech, as I shall have many other opportunities of conversing with Socrates. Let me say first how I ought to speak, and then speak. The previous speakers— instead of praising the god-love, or unfolding his nature, appear to have congratulated mankind on the benefits which he confers upon them. But I would rather praise the god first, and then speak of his gifts. This is always the right way of praising everything. May I say, without impiety or offence, that of all the blessed gods he is the most blessed, because he is the fairest and best? And he is the fairest, for, in the first place, he is the youngest, and, of his youth, he is himself the witness, fleeing out of the way of age, who is swift enough, swifter truly than most of us like. Love hates him, and will not come near him, but youth and love live and move together, like to like, as the proverb says. Many things were said by Phaedrus about love in which I agreed with him, but I cannot agree that he is older than Aeptus and Cronus, not so, I maintain him to be the youngest of the gods, and youthful ever. The ancient doings among the gods of which Hesiod and Parmenides spoke, if the tradition of them be true, were done of necessity, and not of love. Had love been in those days, there would have been no chaining or mutilation of the gods, or other violence, but peace and sweetness, as there is now, in heaven, since the rule of love began. Love is young, and also tender, he ought to have a poet like Homer to describe his tenderness, as Homer says of Ate, that she is a goddess and tender, quote, her feet are tender, for she sets her steps, not on the ground, but on the heads of men, Close quote. Here is an excellent proof of her tenderness, that she walks not upon the hard, but upon the soft. Let us adduce a similar proof of the tenderness of love, for he walks not upon the earth, nor yet upon the skulls of men, which are not so very soft, but in the hearts and souls of both gods and men, which are of all things the softest. In them he walks and dwells, and makes his home. Not in every soul without exception, for where there is hardness he departs. Where there is softness there he dwells, and nestling always with his feet, and in all manner of ways, in the softest of soft places, how can he be other than the softest of all things? Of a truth he is the tenderest as well as the youngest, and also he is of flexible form, for if he were hard and without flexure, he could not unfold all things, or wind his way into and out of every soul of man undiscovered. And a proof of his flexibility and symmetry of form is his grace, which is universally admitted to be, in an especial manner, the attribute of love. Ungrace and love are always at war with one another, The fairness of his complexion is revealed by his habitation among the flowers, for he dwells not amid bloomless or fading beauties, whether of body or soul, or aught else, but in the place of flowers and scents. There he sits and abides, concerning the beauty of the God I have said enough, and yet there remains much more which I might say. Of his virtue I have now to speak, His greatest glory is that he can neither do nor suffer wrong to or from any god or any man. For he suffers not by force if he suffers. Force comes not near him. Neither when he acts does he act by force. For all men in all things serve him of their own free will. And where there is voluntary agreement, there, as the laws which are the lords of the city say, is justice. And not only is he just, but exceedingly temperate, For temperance is the acknowledged ruler of the pleasures and desires, and no pleasure ever masters love. He is their master, and they are his servants, and if he conquers them, he must be tempered indeed. As to courage, even the god of war is no match for him. He is the captive, and love is the Lord, for love, the love of Aphrodite, masters him, as the tale runs, and the master is stronger than the servant. And if he conquers the bravest of all others, he must be himself the bravest. Of his courage and justice and temperance I have spoken, but I have yet to speak of his wisdom, and, according to the measure of my ability, I must try to do my best. In the first place he is a poet, bracket, and here, like Eryximachus, I magnify my art. Close bracket. And he is also the source of poesy in others, which he could not be if he were not himself a poet and at the touch of him every one becomes a poet even though he had no music in him before this also is a proof that love is a good poet and accomplished in all the fine arts for no one can give to another that which he has not himself or teach that of which he has no knowledge who will deny that the creation of the animals is his doing are they not all the works of his wisdom born and begotten of him and as to the artists Do we not know that he only of them who love inspires has the light of fame? He whom love touches not walks in darkness. The arts of medicine and archery and divination were discovered by Apollo, under the guidance of love and desire, so that he too is a disciple of love. Also the melody of the Muses, the metallurgy of Hephaestus, the weaving of Athene. THE EMPIRE OF ZEUS OVER GODS AND MEN, ARE ALL DUE TO LOVE, WHO WAS THE INVENTOR OF THEM, AND SO LOVE SET IN ORDER THE EMPIRE OF THE GODS, THE LOVE OF BEAUTY, AS IS EVIDENT, FOR WITH DEFORMITY LOVE HAS NO CONCERN. IN THE DAYS OF OLD, AS I BEGAN BY SAYING, DREADFUL DEEDS WERE DONE AMONG THE GODS, FOR THEY WERE RULED BY NECESSITY, BUT NOW, SINCE THE BIRTH OF LOVE, AND FROM THE LOVE OF THE BEAUTIFUL, HAS SPRUNG EVERY GOOD IN HEAVEN AND EARTH therefore phaedrus i say of love that he is the fairest and best in himself and the cause of what is fairest and best in all other things and there comes into my mind a line of poetry in which he is said to be the god who quote, gives peace on earth and calms the stormy deep who stills the winds and bids the sufferer sleep Close this is he who empties men of disaffection and fills them with affection who makes them to meet together at banquets such as these, in sacrifices, feasts, dances, he is our Lord, who sends courtesy and sends away discourtesy, who gives kindness ever and never gives unkindness, the friend of the good, the wonder of the wise, the amazement of the gods, desired by those who have no part in him, and precious to those who have the better part in him, parent of delicacy, luxury, desire, fondness, softness, grace, regardful of the good, regardless of the evil, in every word, work, wish, fear, saviour, pilot, comrade, helper, glory of the gods and men, leader best and brightest, in whose footsteps let every man follow, sweetly singing in his honour and joining in that sweet strain with which love charms the souls of gods and men. Such is the speech, Phaedrus, half-playful, yet having a certain measure of seriousness, which, according to my ability, I dedicate to the god. When Agathon had done speaking, Aristodemus said that there was a general cheer. The young man was thought to have spoken in a manner worthy of himself, and of the god. And Socrates, looking at Eryximachus, said, Tell me, son of Acumenus, was there not reason in my fears? And was I not a true prophet when I said that Agathon would make a wonderful oration, and that I should be in a strait? The part of the prophecy which concerns Agathon, replied Eryximachus, appears to me to be true, but not the other part, that you will be in a strait. Why, my dear friend, said Socrates, must not I or any one be in a strait who has to speak after he has heard such a rich and varied discourse? I am especially struck with the beauty of the concluding words. Who could listen to them without amazement? When I reflected on the immeasurable inferiority of my own powers, I was ready to run away for shame, if there had been a possibility of escape, for I was reminded of Gorgias, and at the end of his speech I fancied that Agathon was shaking at me the Gorginian or Gorgonian head of the great master of rhetoric, which was simply to turn me and my speech into stone, as Homer says, and strike me dumb. And then I perceived how foolish I had been in consenting to take my turn with you in praising love, and saying that I too was a master of the art, when I really had no conception how anything ought to be praised. For, in my simplicity, I imagined that the topics of praise should be true, and that this being presupposed, out of the true, the speaker was to choose the best and set them forth in the best manner. And I felt quite proud, thinking that I knew the nature of true praise, and should speak very well whereas i now see that the intention was to attribute to love every species of greatness and glory whether really belonging to him or not without regard to truth or falsehood that was no matter for the original proposal seems to have been not that each of you should really praise love but only that you should appear to praise him and so you attribute to love every imaginable form of praise which can be gathered anywhere and you say that he is all this and the cause of all that making him appear the fairest and best of all to those who know him not for you cannot impose on those who know him and a noble and solemn hymn of praise have you rehearsed but as i misunderstood the nature of the praise when i said that i would take my turn i must beg to be absolved from the promise which i made in ignorance and which as Euripides would say, was a promise of the lips and not of the mind. Farewell, then, to such a strain, for I do not praise in that way. No, indeed, I cannot, but, if you like, to hear the truth about love, I am ready to speak in my own manner, though I will not make myself ridiculous by entering into any rivalry with you. Say, then, Phaedrus, whether you would like to have the truth about love spoken in any words— and in any order which may happen to come into my mind at the time. Will that be agreeable to you? Aristodemus said that Phaedrus and the company bid him speak in any manner which he thought best. Then he added, Let me have your permission first to ask Agathon a few more questions, in order that I may take his admissions as the premises of my discourse. I grant the permission, said Phaedrus. Put your questions. Socrates then proceeded as follows. In the magnificent oration which you just uttered, I think that you are right, my dear Agathon, in proposing to speak of the nature of love, first and afterwards of his works. That is a way of beginning, which I very much approve. And, as you have spoken so eloquently of his nature, may I ask you further, whether love is the love of something or of nothing? And here I must explain myself. I do not want you to say that love is the love of a father or the love of a mother, that would be ridiculous. But to answer as you would, if I asked, is a father a father of something, to which you would have no difficulty in replying, of a son or daughter, and the answer would be right. Very true, said Agathon. And you would say the same of a mother? He assented. Yet let me ask you one more question, in order to illustrate my meaning. Is not a brother to be regarded essentially as a brother of something? Certainly, he replied. THAT IS, OF A BROTHER OR SISTER? YES, HE SAID. AND NOW, SAID SOCRATES, I WILL ASK ABOUT LOVE. IS LOVE OF SOMETHING OR OF NOTHING? OF SOMETHING, SURELY, HE REPLIED. KEEP IN MIND WHAT THIS IS, AND TELL ME WHAT I WANT TO KNOW, WHETHER LOVE DESIRES THAT OF WHICH LOVE IS. YES, SURELY. And does he possess, or does he not possess, that which he loves and desires? Probably not, I should say. Nay, replied Socrates, I would have you consider whether, necessarily, is not rather the word. The inference that he who desires something is in want of something, and that he who desires nothing is in want of nothing, is, in my judgment, Agathon, absolutely and necessarily true. What do you think? I agree with you,' said Agathon. "'Very good. Would he who is great desire to be great, or he who is strong desire to be strong?' "'That would be inconsistent with our previous admissions.' "'True. For he who is anything cannot want to be that which he is.' "'Very true.' "'And yet,' added Socrates, "'if a man being strong desired to be strong,' being swift desired to be swift, or being healthy desired to be healthy, in that case he might be thought to desire something which he already has or is? I give the example in order that we may avoid misconception, for the possessors of these qualities, Agathon, must be supposed to have their respective advantages at the time, whether they choose or not, and who can desire that which he has? Therefore, when a person says, I am well, and wish to be well, or I am rich, and wish to be rich, and I desire simply to have what I have, to him we shall reply, You, my friend, having wealth and health and strength, want to have the continuance of them. For at this moment, whether you choose or no, you have them. And when you say, I desire that which I have and nothing else, is it not your meaning that you want to have what you now have in the future? He must agree with us, must he not? he must, replied Agathon. Then, said Socrates, he desires that which he has at present may be preserved to him in the future, which is equivalent to saying that he desires something which is non-existent to him, and which as yet he has not got. Very true, he said. Then he and every one who desires, desires that which he has not already, and which is future and not present, and which he has not, and is not, and of which he is in want. These are the sort of things which love and desire seek. Very true, he said. Then now, said Socrates, let us recapitulate the argument. First, is not love of something, and of something too, which is wanting to a man? Yes, he replied. Remember further what you said in your speech. Or, if you do not remember, I will remind you, You said that the love of the beautiful set in order the empire of the gods, for that of deformed things there is no love. Did you not say something of that kind? Yes, said Agathon. Yes, my friend, and the remark was a just one, and, if this is true, love is a love of beauty, and not of deformity? He assented. And the admission has been already made that love is of something which a man wants and has not? True, he said. Then love wants and has not beauty? Certainly, he replied. And would you call that beautiful which wants and does not possess beauty? Certainly not. Then would you still say that love is beautiful? Agathon replied, I fear that I did not understand what I was saying. You made a very good speech, Agathon, replied Socrates, but there is yet one small question, which I would fain ask. Is not the good also the beautiful? Yes. Then in wanting the beautiful, love wants also the good? I cannot refute you, Socrates, said Agathon. Let us assume that what you say is true. Say rather, beloved Agathon, that you cannot refute the truth, for Socrates is easily refuted. End of section two. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards.